Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Thank you for joining us. We are very, very privileged to have Dr. Michael Hoos with us again. He's a specialist neurologist at Netcare Linksfield Hospital, and we are doing a series on headaches, and we've reached uh, the part in the series where we are going to speak about migraines. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure, Dean. Nice to be with you guys, and hello to all the listeners. So it's such a common thing I see in my practice. People say, oh, I get migraines. I suffer from migraines. Maybe you can tell us exactly what a migraine is, who gets it, and um, how, you know, um, how they get it. That's a great question, Dean. So a lot of people, lay people, refer to really bad headaches as migraines. But migraine is specifically a distinct neurological disorder. And involves many parts of the neurological system and presents in many ways, one of which involves headaches. So that's why it falls under the sort of headache umbrella. But a migraine is a disturbance in a network that essentially involves both neural structures or nerve structures and vascular structures that are both outside of the head and um, outside of the brain and within the brain. And really it presents clinically as a disorder of recurrent attacks. And these attacks um, unfold through a, a cascade of events that occur over the course of a few hours and may last even days. A typical migraine attack is described as having four main phases. Um, the first phase is called the prodrome. The second is the aura. The third is the headache. And the fourth is the postrome. So just to clinically describe what this is, the migraine prodrome, which is a event that happens prior to uh, the migraine onset, occurs probably in about three-quarters of patients, I'd say. It consists of all types of strange um, symptoms that are psychological or vegetative, as they say, and, and it can occur up to two days prior to the onset of the headache, but usually it's within the first 24 hours. If you speak to patients, they'll tell you that they experience symptoms of increased yawning. They may feel depressed. They might have the opposite feeling and feel euphoric. They feel irritable. They may have some food cravings, constipation, or like a sore, stiff neck. And then they know that they're heading for a migraine. Then, before the headache, about 25% of people will experience an aura. And a migraine aura is really a... Focal neurological symptom, usually sensory, but can be anything. Um, and it usually precedes the headache. In very few patients, it either comes uh, during the headache or after the headache. 
but usually it precedes the headache and leads into a headache. And it can mimic all kinds of neurological events, often looking like a stroke and causing a lot of um, panic and fear, etc., especially when it's the first time that the patient is experiencing a, a migraine aura. Now, just to put in here and jump in here that some patients, like I said, 25% of people with migraine, what we call migraineurs, experience aura. 75% don't have an aura and just have a headache. And there are a fair number of people who have no headache and only experience aura as their, um, their manifestation of migraines. So they will not have a headache. They will only have a neurological event. Now, the typical migraine aura is the gradual development of neurological symptoms over a couple of minutes, and they usually last, the auras last less than an hour. Most auras last between 5 and 30 minutes, but usually less than an hour, and it's completely reversible. The symptoms can be either positive or negative. What we mean by positive or negative, positive means that there's an, a gain in your, in your experience or gain in your sensory or motor experience. So something is new has come. Negative means that you've lost something. So there's a loss in your sense, in, in sensory experience or, or motor function. Okay. Um, this is different to, for example, the differential diagnosis of an aura would be like a stroke or a seizure. A seizure is usually a gain of a symptom. A stroke is usually a loss of a, 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 a loss. So you'd have positive um, features or positive symptoms in, in seizures. You'd have negative symptoms or features in a stroke where you lose sensation or lose motor function. And in migraine, you can have both. So what I mean by positive symptoms, let's take, for example, the common aura, which is a visual aura would be the addition of new symptoms to the experience, which be means you would see new objects. So you would see flashing lights, bright lines, funny shapes, zigzags, scintillating or shimmering zigzag um, uh, or, or, or shiny objects. Okay, You may have an auditory uh, experience of tinnitus or noise or ringing in the ear. You may have pins and needles tingling, a sensory aura, but those are all positive or gain of functions, um, and that includes things like motor symptoms of jerking or repetitive movements, etc. Negative symptoms you may experience maybe sensory, like in terms of the visual, like uh, field, like loss of the visual field. Usually, the central visual field is lost. So often, patients will tell you they're looking at a computer screen or a book or something, and they can't see the word they want to read but they can see the words around it. So they're losing the central visual field where we focus, and that can grow over a few minutes, um, and they lose part of their vision. Same way you can lose part of your sensation on your limb, on your face, you can lose hearing, or you can lose the ability to move part of the body. Um, auras can be quite serious, um, all the way up to people going into a comatose state, from a migraine aura, and I do have one particular patient that gets admitted into different hospitals all over Johannesburg uh, in a coma, and nobody knows what's going on until they um, 
They manage to contact me and get the proper history that this is the way that this patient presents with his migraines once a year. And um, it's very, very confusing and very, very um, challenging for clinicians involved with these symptoms because, like I say, they can mimic strokes. They can mimic what they call transit ischemic attacks or warning strokes. They can mimic seizures. And the history um, of the patients uh, plays a vital role here. So that's the aura. And the aura can take the form of, in, like I say, any neurological event. Sometimes the aura occurs without the headache. So it really becomes very difficult then to diagnose that as a migraine. Um, and you often end up having to exclude other causes like excluding strokes and things like that. Um, quite, I mean, that sounds quite quite uh, scary and, and very, very broad. How do you differentiate between a migraine or a stroke? Or how do you decide to see what's going on or that this is a migraine? So it is very challenging. As you know, even from an ENT perspective, that um, migraine can present or it can present with vertigo or spinning sensations. And then we don't know if it's the inner ear or if it's a stroke or if it's a migraine. But really the idea is that one has to exclude a stroke um, by looking at a number of factors, including the patient's risk factors for stroke, imaging of the brain to exclude that an infarction has not incurred in the brain. There actually hasn't been a stroke visible on MRI. Looking at the natural history of the symptoms, i.e. the symptoms are um, positive or negative as opposed to being purely negative, and that the symptoms were um, reversible within the time period that is typical for an aura, which would be, say, 5 to 30 minutes, but certainly less than an hour. The other thing that's very important is that often, if you speak to migraine patients or anyone who has an aura, the aura tends to spread and that comes from its pathophysiology of the cause of the aura, but really it spreads across the sensory um, field. So if you have a visual aura, you'll see a shimmering object that usually spreads or goes across the visual field. If you're experiencing tingling or pins and needles, it will start in the mouth, for example, move to the neck, then the shoulder. Then after a few minutes, it'll move to the elbow, then one finger at a time, marching across and a stroke won't do that. A stroke will be a sudden um, sort of what they call um, a, a, a sort of a sudden loss of function that involves the entire sensory area all at once. And that's why it's quite important to take a very detailed history from your patient in order to try to differentiate what may be a stroke and may be just a migraine aura. Of course, if a patient has had migraine in the past or has a strong family history of migraine in the family, then that would also help you to distinguish. But really, a lot of the patients will end up having a full stroke workup and all the necessary investigations before a diagnosis of exclusion is made that the patient actually had an aura without headache. Um, the other thing is, 
Can we take yes. a short ad break, Mark, and then we'll carry sure. on talking about auras? We'll be back in we'll be back in a minute. Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson, and we are speaking to Dr. Michael Huth, specialist neurologist at Neck Ellingsfield Hospital. Dischem Linksfield has opened a magnificent new store in the neighborhood complex in Linksfield, Corner 7 and Club Street. It's a full-on Dischem, which meets means that in addition to all your meds, supplements, hygiene, health foods, Dischem is also a wellness and well-baby clinic. There's ample free parking, and remember, Dischem also has free delivery. That's Dischem Linksfield, pharmacists who care. Back to you, Michael, who thank you again for joining us. We're busy talking about migraine auras and how do we differentiate between an aura and a stroke, and you were saying that there's certain signs on the uh, possibly an MRI and the patient's symptoms, you take a very thorough and detailed history. Yeah, and then the other thing, of course, is that um, it's very important for patients and doctors to know that auras or migraines in general are recurrent episodic attacks, where and they're stereotyped, so they're usually the same sort of attack each time. Whereas strokes don't really present like that. Even if there are TIAs or warning strokes prior to a big stroke, they aren't so always stereotyped in the same typical pattern each time. And, um, you know, people often completely freak out on the first time they have an aura. But uh, as they get more used to it, um, they understand the symptom much better than they sort of settle down into into being able to engage and address the aura uh, and, the, and the migraine much better. Um, in terms of the headache, so usually, like I said, the aura will precede the headache. Then the headache happens. Now, the headache doesn't always happen, as described before. But if the headache does occur, it usually is unilateral, meaning it's one-sided. And the... The fact that a headache is unilateral is one of the major hallmarks of migraine compared to other common types of headaches. The headache of migraine tends to have a throbbing or pulsatile quality, especially as the intensity of the headache increases. So it might start off as a dull ache or pressure, but as it increases, it will often become quite pulsatile and throbbing in nature. Um, the attack usually lasts, they say, between 4 to 72 hours, so that headache can persist for quite some time. And there are a lot of associated uh, features with this headache that point to a diagnosis of migraine, and that would be um, associated features of nausea and vomiting, photophobia or phonophobia. Photophobia means... You are sensitive to light and light bothers you, just normal ambient daylight or lights within the, with inside. And phonophobia means noise bothers you and you're very sensitive to, to, to noise. Um, and that often causes migraine sufferers to seek relief by sort of lying in a dark, dark and quiet room. Um, the, Migraineurs often feel that they can't function. 
due to the intensity of the headache. And a common description that really directs one to think about migraine is that the headache is is exacerbated or aggravated significantly by activity. So patients will tell you that when they get this headache, if they start like walking upstairs or trying to lift something or do something, the headache is really aggravated and they actually have to take a break from what they're doing. And this leads to the point to the point that I made in the very first talk we did is that migraine is a, a, a huge makes a huge impact in terms of disability. And um, other things that can happen with the with the migraine headache is is something called cutaneous allodynia. It's a fancy word that just means that a um, a normal stimulus, so such as touch, would produce a painful experience on the scalp. So if a patient has their migraine headache, say, for example, on the temporal area on one side, if a person were to lightly touch that area of the skin or brush their hair or try to wear something, then that would produce quite a lot of pain or sensitivity in that area, even though it's, an, it's not really a painful stimulus. And that may last for a day or two or three or even way after the migraine has settled. Um, and one important factor or, or, or highlighting aspect of migraines is that their attacks are often aborted by sleep. So often you'll find migraineurs will tell you that what they actually have to do is that they either have to vomit a lot and then they find relief or they actually have to get themselves to go to sleep. And once they wake up from a sleep, their migraine is aborted. After the headache, there's the migraine prodrome, which is the last phase. And once the headache resolves, basically the patient experiences this phase during which maybe sudden head movements can cause transient pain. Um, usually there's like a shadow, like I say, of tenderness and anodynia over the area where there was the headache. And patients often generally complain of feeling quite drained or exhausted um, and, and feeling washed out for a day or two after, after a bad migraine. There are some patients, small, a small percentage, who have the opposite of feeling washed and drained out, actually feel elated, euphoric, um, sort of almost manic after their, after their migraines, which is quite an interesting, um, type of patient to treat. Um, I think we should just talk a little bit about quickly about what precipitates migraines. Um, I didn't want to talk too much technical stuff about the pathophysiology of how migraines work, except to say that that delicate network of um, brain brain structures, neurological brain structures and vascular um, and, and neurological structures outside the brain, but within the head, um, are very, very sensitive in people that have migraine extremely oversensitized and will react to any disturbance in the patient's homeostasis. So everyone has a certain status quo internally and externally. And if you disturb that homeostasis and there's a change or fluctuation, then you can trigger this sort of network to go into, um, into a migraine. So the common things we look at, one well, of the common triggers 
are things such as stress um, in females, menstruation, um, changes of weather, um, changes in eating patterns, uh, ingestion of certain foods um, such as cheese or chocolate or wine, so um, what we call sort of food or, 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 or drink triggers, um, disturbances in sleep pattern or lack of sleep, um, ingestion of certain medications or uh, food additives such as monosodium glutamate, MSG. Um, certain people can have triggers such as olfactory triggers from smoking or odors. And then uh, any sort of um, ingestion of tyramine, like I said, is in, involved in certain cheeses and, and um, substances or food substances can cause headaches. And really, um, the commonest ones would probably be emotional stress, hormonal changes in female cycle, so getting close to the menses or menstruation or, um, or migraines that are associated with ovulation, fasting or not eating, and weather or sleep disturbances. Well, I mean, it, it sounds uh, so debilitating and for some patients and also so broad. So I can see why your thorough history um, is really important to make the diagnosis. Dr. Dean Burson, we're speaking to specialist neurologist Dr. Michael Huth, and we are speaking about migraines. We've spoken about some of the symptoms and diagnosis. Who needs treatment? It seems so common. Uh, who needs treatment? Which patients are you going to uh, see? I'm sure a lot of GP treat migraines or see patients. Who needs to see a neurologist and who needs treatment for the migraines? Okay. So if you remember back to our first talk, we, we spoke about the, the sort of um, prevalence of migraine. And this is an extremely prevalent condition. In terms of migraine, about 16 to 17% of females experience migraine and about 6% of males. So there's a lot of people or migraineers out there. And not everybody needs treatment, or not everyone needs the same treatment. So really, we, we divide treatment into two broad categories. One is called abortive treatment or relieving treatment, and one is called prophylactic or preventative treatment. Okay, so the abortive treatment or relieving treatment are medications or uh, activities you can do to relieve or abort a migraine when it starts or when it happens. And preventative or prophylactic treatment, Dean, is when we give a patient either pharmacological, i.e. medication, or non-pharmacological, other types of sort of uh, treatments. We give it to them on a daily basis or a monthly basis, or etc., and that is done to prevent the migraines from occurring. Now, who needs preventative medications? Well, usually it's... Um, patients who have various indications. For example, let's say, for example, a patient has frequent or long-lasting migraine headaches. So they're having more than two or three migraines a month. Or they're having migraines that last two or three days that they have to take off work two or three days a month. Or perhaps a migraine attack is causing significant disability through its prodrome or the or the after effects. Maybe the patient cannot use acute therapies, i.e. they don't have too many migraines, but when they do have a migraine, they have some sort of physical problem or illness or contraindication to using the acute therapies, and they therefore want to 
find a way to stop the migraines from coming in the first place. Perhaps they've been using acute therapies for a long time and they either have now failure of the acute therapies to work or the acute therapies are causing them to have, you know, serious side effects. Or perhaps they've been overusing the acute therapy so much so that it's been causing what we call medication. Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Neurologist Dr. Michael Hu, and we are speaking about migraines. We have gone through some of the diagnosis and uh, history and patient symptoms, and now we're going to speak a bit about treatment. So who needs to be treated, Michael, being with this is such a common disorder? Very good point, Dean. I think that's going back to our first talk, just remember that migraine is a very common um, disorder. About 16, 17% of females, 6% of males will have migraine at some point in their lives. So it's important to know who to treat and how to treat them. And not everybody is treated the same. Really, we divide migraine treatment into two broad categories. The first category would be considered um, abortive treatment or relieving treatment. That's what we take or we give to patients to stop a migraine when it's happening and to break a migraine when it's happening. And then there is preventative or prophylactic um, treatments which we give to stop migraines from occurring or to lessen the intensity when they do occur. And that can be both pharmacological, i.e. medicines, or non-pharmacological mechanisms, so, so different types of things we do that is not related to actually taking pills or medications. And um, really, it's important to decide who uh, is a candidate for preventative or prophylactic um, medication. So who do we give that to? It's usually people who are having very frequent or long-lasting migraine headaches, so more than two a month, or perhaps their migraine lasts for long, two or three days and they have to take two or three days off work every month or every two months. Um, the migraine attacks could cause the patient significant disability, diminished quality of life, uh, even if they're taking the acute ther- the therapies. Perhaps the, the acute therapies don't work, or they cause side effects in the patient, so you can't take them. Or perhaps there's a contraindication where the patient is not allowed to take those type of medications that are acute therapies. Or perhaps the patient has been overusing the acute migraine sort of um, um, abortive medications and they've been using it so much that they developed something called a medication overuse headache from too much use of migraine um, relievers. And then often menstrual migraines, people who are known to have migraines over the menstrual period do very well with specific preventative medication over that period um, of, of their cycle. Really the goal is we want to reduce the amount of attacks the patient has, reduce the severity of the attack, and reduce the duration of the attack. And once we can reduce those three factors by 50%, it's considered in most of the headache medicine world as successful treatment. Um, we want to obviously improve also the responsiveness of, of the treatments to the relievers as well, and generally improve the patient's function and reduce their disability. 
Um, I think it's important also to understand that there's certain very sort of more serious types of migraines that occur that need treatment no matter how frequent they're occurring, and that would be things such as hemiplegic migraine, where a person becomes paralyzed on one side during their aura, or a migraine with a what we call a brainstem aura. So those are patients who develop symptoms of brainstem um, dysfunction during the aura, such as double vision, vertigo, uh, lots of vomiting, and imbalance, um, and they may also develop a coma or depressed level of consciousness. Um, patients who have auras that are longer than one hour and patients who have had, which is very rare but does occur, uh, a stroke that has come about because of their migraine, which occurs very rarely but is a known phenomenon. Um, really, the, the number of medications we have to treat migraines is, is quite broad, and um, not one size does not unfortunately fit all. So one has to be um, quite selective in choosing medication, and we have classes of medications that are options. I mean, do you, would you like me to go through some of the medications? Yes, please. I think so, because probably a lot of people have heard about different medications or have been on different medications and don't understand who benefits from what or who gets what. Okay, so really you need to select the, the medication based on each patient because each medication has added benefits and treats other things besides migraine and also has side effects, which you don't want to don't want to sort of expose the patient to. And the class of medications are things like beta blockers, uh, such as drugs like propanolol. Um, you might know uh, by other names such as perblocker or indoral, and those work um, a lot on areas of both the vessels and also the connections between the vessels and the nerves. And then there are um, a lot of drugs that are in the classes of antidepressants that work on serotonin and noradrenaline and which are two major um, neurotransmitters that are involved in the transmission of pain and pain sensitivity and those are drugs such as amitriptyline or trepoline as it's known and venlafaxine also known as venlor or exira and then there are anti-epileptics or anti-convulsive drugs that we use that are known to um, help in migraine, and that would be sodium valproate, also known as epilim or epilazine, and topiramate, also known as topamax uh, or toplip. And all of these medications have different side effects and different uses. So, for example, migraine is often comorbid with anxiety and mood problems. Therefore, an antidepressant is very suitable for these patients. Uh, migraine might be precipitated by stress and might be precipitated by um, lack of sleep. Therefore, also amitriptyline, for example, which helps somebody to sleep um, better, might be better choice for that kind of patient. Um, Dupyramate is often known um, quite famously for suppressing appetite, so it can be used in patients who require a bit of weight loss. Valproate does the opposite and, and causes a person to increase appetite and put on weight, so it's not use, useful in patients who um, 
have a high body mass index or are overweight or obese. Um, beta blockers are contraindicated in asthmatics and contraindicated in diabetics um, and are useful in patients who are anxious because they will um, lessen some physical symptoms of anxiety. So you can see just in those three classes, there are lots of factors to sort of weigh up pros and cons as to which medications will work for which patient. Then often what we'll do is we'll use one medication to start with and slowly introduce a second or sometimes even a third medication depending on the control. So that's why it's very important for patients to do all the kinds of things we spoke about in the first talk, which is keeping a seizure diary, um, starting to understand what works for their headaches, what doesn't work, what are possible triggers or exacerbating precipitators, um, when their headaches occur, what time of day, what time of the week, what time of the month, and then getting to understand what is um, what is working, what isn't working. So really, if you treat a patient properly with both pharmacological and non-pharmacological medications, you probably get a reduction, uh, like I said, of the 50% in those three areas of frequency, intensity, and duration in almost uh, three-quarters of patients. So there can be success in treating your migraines, and really have to pick the right drug for the right patient and the right treatment for the right patient, depending on who the patient is, what other comorbidities they might have, what medication side effect profile the patient is susceptible to, and what the patient wants out of their treatment. Um, we often we often hear uh, some people say, no, they, they take some painkillers and go to sleep. We spoke about the sleep. What about just taking your regular painkillers, Panado or aspirin, something like that? I know some people take aspirin with um, metrocopramide, something to empty the stomach. Um, Will those medications work or are people just wasting their time and uh, sleep is what actually does the trick? So that's a great question. So that would come down to the, the abortive or relieving therapies. And really um, it's well shown that both analgesics and anti-inflammatories um, are effective in relieving and aborting most migraines if taken early enough. So really the key is um, that one has to take painkillers or anti-inflammatories very early on in a migraine for various uh, reasons. One of the most important reasons is that during the migraine phenomenon, which is a ne neurological phenomenon, gastric emptying slows down. So your stomach actually does not contract as much and therefore you can't really absorb the medications that you put in uh, into your stomach during the migraine. And what this leads to is people take medications and then they get no sort of effect. So often adding a medication such as Maxilon or metoclopramide, which is a nausea medication, but actually has itself anti-migraine properties um, through its effect on serotonin and also increases gastric motility or the movement and contraction of the stomach is very good because it allows the stomach to continue contracting and therefore um, to empty the, the, the painkillers into the, the parts of the intestine that can absorb it. And that's quite quite a good combination. That's why often you'll find your doctor will recommend a combination of something like metoclopramide or Maxilon together with, for example, 2-Panado and 2-Nurofen. Now, 
Yeah. So just, just, just to say that, I mean, I prefer to use certain medications that are quick acting because I really need uh, absorption to happen quickly. So that's what I was about to ask you. That yeah. I know that you do get migraine uh, wafers or dissolvables that go under the tongue. Maybe you can tell us a bit about those. Fine. So just to say that the, the fastest, one of the fastest acting um, medication relievers is is ibuprofen, also known as Nurofen. So taking two Nurofen takes 15 minutes to be absorbed, and it's one of the best options for the suitable patient who can take anti-inflammatories. A lot of patients can't take anti-inflammatories for various reasons. Then there's another class of medications completely different to painkillers, um, and that would be uh, called the tryptans, which are migraine-specific medications, migraine-specific relievers. And these, these tryptans um, come in different forms. Two of the commonest uh, tryptans come in the form of wafers. Some come in the form of nasal sprays, and some come in the form of injections that you inject subcutaneously, just like where you would inject insulin or a blood thinner like Lexan, you can inject this tryptan migraine, anti-migraine drug subcutaneously. So you don't need with a spray or with an injection, etc., to even use um, the, the root of the stomach absorption. Um, really, these are very well suited to patients who, who have classical migraine uh, symptoms and most patients with migraine respond to these to these types of drugs, these migraine specific drugs, although not all do. Other types of migraine specific drugs would be ergotamine or um, uh, medications that work both on uh, serotonin and also on other um transmitters, neurotransmitters, or hormones involved in uh, vascular vasodilation or dilation of the vessels. And these have to be sometimes combined with, like I said, painkillers plus, uh, for example, a drug like Maxlon or metoclopramide. The important thing to know here is that um, these medications cannot be used more than a few times per month. So if you are given some type of abortive cocktail by your doctor, either involving just painkillers or migraine-specific medications or both together, they are really um, to be used certainly less than um, eight or ten times per month. And the reason is that once they get used more than eight to ten times per month, they lead to what's called medication overuse syndromes, which can make your headaches much worse and much more frequent and create headaches that happen in between the migraines. They can also be responsible for transforming somebody from what we call episodic migraine into chronic migraine. Episodic migraine occurs less than 15 days per month. Chronic migraine, more than 15 days a month. So if somebody starts to slowly over months to years use more and more and more wafers or more and more and more sprays or more and more and more painkillers, eventually their migraines become more and more frequent. They sometimes develop sort of a, tension, a similar tension type headache in between the migraines and things get worse and worse and worse for them. And they also become less responsive to the, the relievers 
and sometimes even less responsive to preventers. So it's very important to understand that any type of cocktail or relieving medication for migraine must be used sparingly and that if you are having to use your medications for relief more than a few times a month, it's time to approach your doctor for preventative medication. Tell me, what, what else can be done uh, to treat migraines besides medication? I know there's some lifestyle uh, changes which you wanted to talk about. Anything else? Very important. So migraine needs a holistic, like all headaches, needs a holistic approach. And a combination between pharmacological, non-pharmacological, and lifestyle treatments. So just to quickly go into the lifestyle treatment of migraine. Really, as I said before, migraine triggers or migraine precipitants are whenever there's a disturbance in the homeostasis or the status quo of that person's sort of internal, external world. That would be in, in, in major areas of, for example, sleep and sleep patterns, eating patterns, um, exercise patterns, drinking of water and hydration, and stress patterns. Those are the five main common areas that we really drive home and approach, and we call them the SEEDS areas, S-E-E-D-S. Okay, so that, once again, that's sleep, eating, exercise, drinking of water, and stress. And with drinking of water goes things like caffeine intake, because caffeine is a diuretic, which means that it draws water outside your, out of your body and will make you um, dehydrated. So for, for amount of caffeine that you take in, you have to replace it with a certain amount of water. And it's very, very difficult to get people, people to, ta- to make changes in these areas. Let's take water drinking, for example. Almost all migraineurs, they say in research, shows that uh, that, that most migraineurs underestimate the amount of water they drink. Yes, doctor, I, d- I drink a lot of water. But when you actually measure the amount of water they drink during the day, it's too little. How do you get somebody to drink more water? Because people don't have time in a busy schedule to pop past a 7-Eleven or a Shell Select and pick up water bottles and put them in their cars and bring them to their offices, etc., etc. So often we have to find sneaky and tricky ways to increase water intake, such as getting a patient to get used to drinking tap water, for example, when they after they brush their teeth or use the bathroom or toilet or um, you know during their during their sort of routines, getting a patient to get used to ordering water at the table every time they meet friends for coffee or go out for dinner, etc., etc. And getting a patient to understand that whenever they order a cup of coffee or they're having a cup of coffee, they have to have water on the side. So those are kind of things we, we, um, or, you know, often we have to ask them to outsource their water to a family member. So a family member has to keep, uh, you know, putting water in front of them or a, a secretary or something like that. Because it's very, very difficult during a very busy schedule to increase your water intake. Same thing for sleep, getting a person to sleep regularly. You know, when a person sleeps six hours a night, then it's fine as long as they continue sleeping six hours a night. But the problem comes when you vary, when you vary things and you disturb the status quo by sleeping eight or nine hours one night, four hours the next night, then seven hours the next night, etc. So you have to keep things static. And the same thing goes for all kinds of trigger, triggers, whether it's coffee intake, um, stress levels, exercise, etc. It has to be 
static and maintained at similar levels each day. Otherwise, any disturbance or fluctuations will lead to to a migraine. And that's what we sort of start focusing on. And we use a diary to inform us of what the actual patient is susceptible to in terms of their triggers. And the modern um, apps that we use for diaries record sleep and eating and drinking and all that within the within the within the diary. Okay. All right. We're going to take another short ad break, and then maybe we can speak about uh, other types, some other types of headaches that might uh, mimic or be uh, similar in presentation and differential diagnosis. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Just Care Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We are speaking to Dr. Michael Huth, specialist neurologist at Netcare. Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. We're speaking to specialist neurologist Dr. Michael Huth, and we have been speaking about migraines, and uh, this is our third part in the headache series. Tell me, Dr. Huth, what is a tension type uh, headache and how is it treated? I know this uh, could be one of your differentials in patients coming into you with headaches. Can you give us a bit of information about that? Sorry, did I didn't catch that? What, which, what was the question? So what is, sorry, what is a tension type headache? I know it's one of your differential uh, diagnoses um, in migraines. And how do you treat them? Okay, tension type headache is probably one of the commonest type of uh, headache disorders, and definitely one of the commonest general diseases in medicine. Uh, everybody, almost everybody that you know, has had this type of headache. Um, I've really met somebody who's never had a headache, but there are those kind of people out there, those lucky people. But most people have had some some sort of headache at some point in their lives, and usually it's a tension type headache. So you get three types of tension type headaches. One is um, called uh, a, an isolated tension type headache or an, an ep, sort of uh, an episode of a tension type headache. And one is called, the second type is called episodic tension type headache in which uh, patients will get uh, recurrent headaches. And then the third type, which is the one that usually ends up going to the doctor, is a chronic tension type headache where the patient has a headache for more than 15 days of the month, and that can be for many, many months. Um, you know, in terms of the person who gets a headache once a month or once every three months or every six months, um, they don't really require any sort of specialist intervention because they usually take analgesics and their headache will go away and resolve. And those patients are quite safe from um, sort of transforming into more chronic headaches since they're not overusing um, headache-relieving medication. The dangerous area is the people that get what they call episodic tension-type headache, which is a, maybe, you know, two or three times a week or, you know, sort of say twice a week. And so it's less than 15 days in the month. Um, but it does require you to take painkillers or treatment more often. And therefore, when they 
expose themselves to acute therapies for headache or painkillers, etc., they can transform into chronic daily headaches uh, or people who have tension-type headaches every single day. And I'm sure most of the listeners know somebody who complains of headaches every single day and carries analgesics or painkillers in their bags, uh, if they're women, in their handbag or in, in their cubbyhole or et cetera, et cetera, or the bathroom is just littered with all the different types of painkillers. And the problem comes in because, as I said before, um, chronic tension type headache or headaches that you have every single day um, go hand in hand with medication overuse syndromes. And once a patient is using painkillers for more than 10 or 15 days in the month, um, they get into trouble and it's very difficult to ever get on top of their headaches and improve their headaches. But a tension type headache really is differentiated for migraine in the fact that it is a headache that is usually on both sides of the head. It doesn't usually have a throbbing pulsatile quality, although if it's very, very severe, it may. It usually has a quality of like a tight band felt around the head or a general pressure or ache or pressure felt behind the eyes or sometimes pressure at the back of the head. And the headache is uh, not associated with all those other features that migraine is, such as nausea, photophobia, phonophobia, it doesn't have an aura, etc. <clears throat> and it often is not responsive to the types of medications that migraine is, although some medica- some patients may respond to migraine-specific medications. Um, often we find that patients with these headaches feel quite tender in the muscles surrounding their head, and they will often find them massaging their temples or the area of the pain. Precipitating factors for these kind of headaches are um, sort of certain head or neck movements can trigger it, um, certain foods, uh, skipping meals or hunger, and sometimes sort of um, long periods sort of at the screen or working with screens, etc. These are headaches that usually are not present on waking. They come at the mid-morning or they start off at the mid-morning or lunchtime. They build slowly through the afternoon. They're really bad towards the end of the workday as you're coming home when usually patients feel they have to take their first set of painkillers. And really... The important thing is to diagnose these headaches properly, not to confuse them with migraine, and to treat them appropriately um, with making sure the patient does not overuse painkillers, trying to get the patient to reduce the number of painkillers they're on and to wean them off painkillers, and to replace them with safer chronic medication for chronic pain. So if a patient ends up with a chronic tension type headache, i.e. more than 10 or 15 episodes of the headache um, for many, many months on an ongoing basis, then they will need specific medications that are safe to take every day. Painkillers you cannot take every day. So painkillers, as I've said before in the first talk, have no role and no place in chronic pain. And then you have to kind of get the patient to switch onto neurological medications. And often the medications that work very well for these patients 
are amitriptyline or trepaline. Um, other types of uh, antidepressants such as venlafaxine or mirtazapine and certain types of other non-pharmacological methods of treatment um, such as Botox into certain muscles and um, relieving uh, activities such as hot and cold compresses, acupuncture, physiotherapy, um, trying to reduce the amount of uh, resting tension in muscles uh, of mastication or, or, or muscles of chewing, so reducing the, the, the tension in both the masseter and temporalis muscles in patients who clench a lot during the day or grind at night, and that might involve physiotherapy, uh, postural change, um, using dental sort of plates, and often Botox into those muscles to weaken those muscles a bit and reduce the tension. And it's a really very important um, condition to use a holistic approach. Patients might need psychotherapy. They may need um, relaxation therapy, biofeedback, massage, all these different types of alternative therapies that go hand in hand with medication. So um, I think for people who just thought that headaches were something simple that you take a, a Panado or Grandpa or some other painkiller, obviously uh, you've just told us over the past hour that this uh, isn't the case. Once again, Dr. Huth, we thank you so much for coming on our show. If people want to get a hold of you to make an appointment, please give us a contact number. So you can call my practice on 611 Three double five nine, or even better to email us on huth.neurology at gmail.com. Dr. Mark Huth, thank you so much for enlightening us and educating us about headaches and migraines. Thank you to all our listeners for joining. And we'll be back next week on 101.9 High FM Disc Medical Mondays. Thank you again. I'm Dean Gerson.